Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It was just about four years ago that Barack Obama and Raul Castro normalized U.S.-Cuba relations. President Trump thought the terms of the normalization were a one-sided deal for Cuba, and he made it harder to travel and spend money in Cuba. And, of course, Congress has yet to lift sanctions on Cuba, but a surprising amount of engagement continues. Eric Schmidt from Google and Senator Jeff Flake met with Cuba's President Miguel Diaz-Canel earlier this summer. And the website for the Cuban embassy notes a lot of different things that are going on, like talks on migration, a law enforcement dialogue, medical and scientific cooperation. Miguel Fraga is the first secretary of the Cuban embassy, and he's in Chicago. He's doing a brunch on Sunday at the Boathouse in Humboldt Park. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you, too. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could do a little recap for us on how far things came during the Obama administration and where you thought U.S.-Cuba relations were at after normalization. Well, to be honest, uh, thanks for the opportunity, uh, but I really believe that what President Obama and President Raul did was something that the majority of both countries support. So it was not only because both both leaders sit down and say, okay, we have to, to change. Uh, the problem is that the, according to all the polls here in the United States, the majority of the American people wants better relations with Cuba. And it's also what the majority of the Cuban people wants. We are neighbors. What you mentioned about uh, all the things that we have been doing for all these four years since 2015 when we established diplomatic relations uh, is what uh, we can do because we face similar challenges between both countries, the law enforcement, the immigration, the the narcotics uh, deal that we signed. To uh, Those are things that, again, are challenges that we face. And if we work together... Uh, that proved that relations are possible for both countries. Uh, and what you mentioned right now, just to recap, we have the direct flights between Cuba and the United States for the first time in more than 50 years. We have the cruise companies, uh, companies uh, cruise companies coming from, from Florida, the majority, to Havana and to other cities. Uh, and, and I really believe there, there is a lot of opportunities for both countries because what you say that we normalize relations is not quite, you know, like that because the embargo, unfortunately, is still in place. Americans can go to all the countries in the world, but in order to go to Cuba, they need a license. Uh, there's opportunity, for example, for the agricultural sector. And here in Illinois, there are big opportunities for Cuba to buy agricultural products, but there is still obstacles that we need to solve if we want to normalize relations. What exactly happened when uh, President Trump put some restrictions on travel in Cuba and uh, investing in Cuba? Because uh, there's a list at the State Department website of restricted entities and sub-entities associated with Cuba, and it seems pretty long. It's a, pr- a gigantic chunk <laughs> of it is hotels, and then you move on to marinas, old stores in, stores in Old Havana, entities directly serving the defense and security sectors, uh, sub-entities of a couple of uh, Cuban holding companies, uh, that kind of thing. What, what exactly did we stop, did the, did the Trump administration stop investment in? Well, I, I believe that, uh, unfortunately, uh, we, we see this moment uh, after, again, the last two years of President Obama when we did a lot of 
progress in the relation. But uh, what you see right now is that, uh, again, it's more difficult for the common citizen, the American citizen, to go to Cuba. Uh, b because President Obama allows people to go under a people-to-people -people, uh, license that was an individual people-to-people. -people. So you can go tomorrow to engage with the Cuban people, but uh, President uh, Trump uh, reversed that part of the... Is it still okay for uh, agricultural entities to buy and sell goods in Cuba? Because I, I, as I look over the list, I don't see any. I don't see much about agriculture in there. The problem with the agricultural sector is that we can still buy things here, but we don't receive credits. So we need to pay in cash and we need to pay in advance, which is uh, very difficult for anybody to do businesses like that. We receive credits from other countries, and for that reason, for us, it's more easy to buy in Canada, Europe, Asia, and not here. But we are talking about a $2 billion uh, agricultural uh, exports. We buy 70 to 80% of our food abroad. That means $2 billion of dollars. But because we don't receive credits here in the United States, uh, sometimes it's more easy for us to buy in other uh, countries. We need Congress to change that. It's not only the president. For that reason, there are bills right now in Congress uh, that uh, are looking to, to remove those obstacles that are still in, in the way for our better relations. I'm talking with Miguel Fraga. He's the first secretary of the Cuban embassy. Coming up in a few minutes, film contributor Milos Stalik talks with Steve James, the filmmaker, about his new documentary, America to Me, about race and class issues in Oak Park. Uh, I wanted to ask a bit about Congress because uh, the Cuba issue is interesting. It is not necessarily a Republican and Democrat issue. There's lots of Republicans who want to do business in Cuba. There are lots of Democrats who are against uh, lifting the sanctions on Cuba. How do you read what goes on in Congress these days? Well, uh, I have to go again to, to the polls. Uh, according to all the American polls, the majority of the American people wants better relations. So right now we can say that it's a bipartisan issue. Of course, we know that it's not a priority. Cuba is not a priority for, for uh, the people that uh, deal with politics here. But there is a lot of opportunities. For that reason, every place I visit, I try to say one good first step is going to Cuba. We need Unfortunately, again, you asked to, I have been in more than 50 states, more than 30 American universities talking with young students, and I always ask one question, do you want to go to Cuba? The majority say yes, for many reasons, you know, the old cars, the music, <laughs> uh, the cigar, the wrong. But when you ask the, follow, the, the next question and you say, have you been able to travel to Cuba? The majority has not been able because they don't know how to travel. They don't know how to apply for the license. So what we have right now is that the majority of the American people has not been able to go to Cuba. And we are 90 miles away, away from Florida. You know, we are close. We are neighbors. So uh, the, the idea is that when you go to the hill and you talk with the people in the hill, they say, Cuba is not a threat for the United States. Uh, we have so much in common. You know, baseball is our national sports also. Uh, 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 and you say, well, why we don't improve relations? Oh, it's not a priority. It's not a priority for us. We are dealing with many issues right now. So it's only, unfortunately, a priority for people that don't want the relation. That right now, again, is a minority. 
It seems like the Trump administration's main objection is that they don't want money going to the military in Cuba, which they think is restricting personal freedoms in Cuba. And so their sanctions are geared towards the military, which they think controls too much of the Cuban economy. Uh, I imagine this has a certain amount of appeal to libertarians who want to see a, a, a you know a freedom of spending and all that. Is this um, something that uh, Cuba has to address? They, they, they have to loosen their economy and make it not so military-oriented. For that reason, my advice is go to Cuba. If you read, for example, uh, statements from Airbnb, uh, the company that has make uh, has business with Cuba with the private people that rent their private homes for tourists to come, uh, those are not the military. You know, uh, to be honest, the the new moment with the Obama administration with President Obama uh, made possible for one million of Americans to go to Cuba. Last year, we received one million of visitors from the United States, six hundred thousand. Uh, American and more than 400 South and Cuban Americans. Those people go and spend their, their time in the private sector. We are talking about private restaurants. We are talking about private homes because that is regulated by your laws. So uh, the idea that behind Cuba everything is military or everything is going to the economy that is controlled by the military is not true. For that reason, my advice is always go to Cuba and see by yourself. We have right now uh, for example, one hotel that is running by Marriott, uh, uh, and we have uh, opportunities in many areas that are have nothing to do with the military uh, sector. We are talking about that in the last, I don't know, uh, probably 10 years, uh, we have grown for almost zero to 10% of the labor force is right now in the private sector. So that is not the military. I was reading some statistics on the number of private businesses that have opened in Cuba in the last uh, recent history. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some idea of, of how the economy is transitioning in Cuba? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, our labor force is 5 million of people. Right now we, we have 11 million of people in Cuba. It's more like, uh, more, uh, more like Ohio for example, and our area is like Pennsylvania. So we are not so, you know, uh, so 11 million of people, 5 million in the labor force, and more than 10% right now in the private sector. Uh, and you see that uh, the debate that we have right now in Cuba is about more opportunities for uh, the self-employment uh, sector. And probably you know that we are right now uh, in the debate for a new constitution. Uh, that is going to come to a referendum in February next year. Uh, so there is a lot that is happening right now. But the idea that Cuba is not open for uh, you know the foreign investment is not true. We have relation with almost every country in the world. Uh, as I mentioned, we have one hotel with uh, United States, but we have more than 20 hotels with one company from Spain. We have uh, uh, other business opportunities, and that is the reason why United States is isolated in the case of Cuba. I don't know if you're aware that every year we present a resolution in the United Nations General Assembly. In United Nations General Assembly, you have 193 countries. 191 
vote in support of the Cuban resolution asking to the United States to lift the embargo. And this is not because solidarity. This is because all those countries are suffering for, from the, uh, because of the embargo. So the European Union wants to do more business with Cuba, but the embargo is in the place. It's, it's, a, it's an obstacle. Uh, and for that reason, when President Obama changed, uh, made a few changes and, and, and important changes, the international community was behind that and support that and applaud uh, that uh, moment because it was an historic moment. Uh, and again, it's now more difficult to explain why you don't have a relation with Cuba. If you say it's because the military, we can say, okay, United States has a relation with countries uh, that right now uh, are controlled by militaries or, or it's the same with the communism. United States has a relation with communist countries. Uh, uh, and I always use the example of Vietnam, you know, you lost more than 58,000 soldiers in Vietnam and you restablished diplomatic relations. You have a wonderful trade relation and Vietnam is a communist country. So why not with, with Cuba? It's the same with the idea of the political system that we have when we only have one political party. United States has relations with countries that don't allow political parties. So it's difficult to explain why if we have many things, many opportunities, uh, and, and we only want... Is the only thing that we want is goodwill and respect, and we can accomplish uh, a lot between both countries. What kind of relationship <laughs> does the Cuban government have with some of the uh, Cuban Americans in this country who are really against restoring relations? Because they seem to be the big obstacle here, and they're a political obstacle in, in Florida. Um, is there a dialogue there that is getting any different? I think that that is a wonderful question. I think that is a wonderful question. But according to Florida International University, so it's not Cuban propaganda, 63% of the Cuban in Miami wants better relations between Cuba and United States, 63%. But if you go, according to that poll, and this poll is 2016, uh, if you go to the last generation of Cubans that came to the United States, the generation between 19, 19, uh, 1996 and 2016, 80% of support. So there is not any more that the majority of the Cuban Americans don't want better relations. We have 2 million of Cuban Americans living here in the United States. Uh, we have Cuban Americans in all the 50 states. We have like 348 in Alaska. I don't know what they do there because the weather is so different. <laughs> but the idea is that we are open for the relation with our immigration. And, and one number that we published this year is that, is that in the last year, 13,000 Cuban Americans returned to live in Cuba return to live in Cuba. So that means that uh, the country is open for work with our immigration. Miguel Franga is the first secretary of the Cuban embassy. He is in Chicago for a Sunday brunch at the Boathouse Cafe in Humboldt Park. And if you want to RSVP, you can do so to charlie at cubatravel.com. Uh, good to meet you, and thanks for coming in and talking with us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I am so happy to be here in Chicago and to see, again, what I, I saw in almost every place here in the, in the United States, that we have opportunities uh, and people support the, the relations. And for that reason, we want to say the door is open in our side. Miguel Fraga, First Secretary of the Cuban Embassy, thanks for joining us.
Coming up after the break, we'll have film contributor Milo Stalik, and I'll talk with documentary filmmaker Steve James about America to Me. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. WBEZ film contributor and director at Facets in Chicago, Milo Stalik, interviews the world's film greats. And today he sits down with Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Steve James. His new star's original documentary series, America to Me, was filmed at the Oak Park River Forest High School in Chicago's suburbs. So, Steve, you live in Oak Park. Did you go to high school in Oak Park? No. No. No, I grew up in Virginia, but I've lived in Oak Park for a long, long time. And so why did you want to go back to high school? <laughs> <laughs> well, first time around didn't go so well for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, I hated high school. Um, but, you know, my kids went to this high school, and I've lived in the community of Oak Park for a long time. And I have thought for years that it would be interesting to try to look at race and education in a community like Oak Park, which you know is extremely liberal, very diverse, very proud of its history around dealing with race and progressive values. Uh, And yet, it's a community that has struggled literally for decades around achievement between its black and white students and has struggled with race, you know, um, with having frank conversations about race. And so I just thought there's a lot of great films that have been done about poor inner city schools with no resources and threats of violence and extreme poverty, I just thought maybe it's time to focus on a different kind of school in a different kind of community. And so what did you do? Show up and say, hey, I want to spend the next year here? <laughs> <Can't be out." laughs> well, one of the reasons that I didn't do this, or even attempt to do this for years, was because I never thought it would be possible to get permission to go into the high school. And then I found out from a teacher over there who my kids had, who teaches media over there, John Conney, who then came on as a series producer. He informed me when he read in an interview that this was an idea I always wanted to do but never thought possible. He contacted me and said, actually, I do think it's possible. The administration won't make the decision about whether you come into the school or not. I was like, really? And they said, no, it's actually a school board decision. And he said, I think that the school board very well might be receptive. And he was right. And the reason being why? Why would it? Well, I think that the school board, first of all, is made up of community members and a lot of parents. And a number of them ran on platforms of equity and change around these issues. I think also most of them had not been school board members for an extremely long time. They didn't personally feel like the failures of the institutions and of the community around these issues were their fault, that they were actually trying to be change agents. And I think they just felt like it was time to maybe shake some things up. You know, when we presented to the board on a couple of occasions and took questions and everything, at one point one of the board members said, I think it's time we held a mirror up to our school and our community around this, and hopefully this series can help us be better at making change. And so what was your pitch? Was that your pitch? I'm going to hold up a mirror to you? Yeah, yeah. It was That was essentially it. It was much of what I said earlier here about we as a community have kind of failed to successfully address these things. I wanted to focus on a school like this. I wanted to tell stories of kids who were not 
growing up in really poor neighborhoods, and I'm as guilty or more guilty of this if you want to assign blame any documentary filmmaker out there, is that I have often focused only on kids who grow up in very difficult circumstances. And so, you know, all of these things were part of the pitch. I think the only reason that they really went forward beyond a desire to hold the mirror up was because I had lived in the community all those years. My kids had gone to the school and my track record as a filmmaker. I don't think just any filmmaker coming in could have made the same pitch and gotten permission. Because one of the things that's remarkable is the level of ease and situations that you get into, into classrooms, into the homes. So this was a very... Seems like a you know invading Afghanistan. I mean, kind of, well, I mean, like a complexity, yeah. complexity oh of. My God. Yeah. So, how did you manage all this? Well, when we set about to recruit and cast, which I've never done before, you know, kids to be our main subjects. One of the things that was clear to me was, first of all, we weren't just casting kids; we were casting families because I felt like if you're really going to address issues of race and education in the community, you cannot ignore the role of family in that and and in the lives of these kids and telling their stories. And so we had families come in. And so that dynamic was a big part of who we selected. And then what we did is, is that the school, the administration, even though they spoke openly against allowing us to film, once the school board made a decision, then they were charged with cooperating. And for the most part, they did you know, a, a really good job of cooperating and giving us the kind of access that the school board wanted us to have. Um, but, you know, there were battles along the way where they tried to restrict us in ways that I didn't feel was fair and I had to push back. But it's such a big institution. It's a big high school. It's a huge high school, 3,400 students. I think we were also able to kind of it, – it is like a country <laughs> unto itself. We You know, we were able to kind of – just get in there. And even if there were days when there were three of us filming, it never felt like we were taking over the school. We were still able to kind of blend in. And then teachers had to agree to let us into their classroom. And a lot of times the way that began was with a meeting to talk to the teachers about what we're doing, why we're doing it. And then some teachers said, no, thank you. Uh, and other teachers said, okay, I'm going to let you in. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Steve James, whose new 10-part series on television is called America to Me, shot in Oak Park River Forest High School over the course of a year it took. Yeah, so yeah. a whole school year and you know a few months prior and after. So African-American students are a minority in Oak Park uh, River Forest High School. And one of the things that emerges from it is the kind of disconnect that there is between the white students, the white parents, the administration, all these kinds of disconnects that nobody really seems to understand and get what those students are going through. Yeah, you know, and it's not because people don't care, I don't think, at all. I, you know, I think there's been a lot of hand-wringing in the community over some of these issues. But I do think that, you know, within the walls of the school, there are certain, um, there are certain sort of institutional biases that fall into place, and some of that revolves around tracking, for example. Um, you know, Oak Park, like a lot of schools around the country, has pretty serious tracking of students from AP to honors to what Oak Park calls college prep, which would be regular track most places, to uh, transitions in special ed. And as you look across those various tracks, you see that um, in the upper AP and honors, it's way overly represented by white students, 
the lower tracks are way overly represented by students of color. And that alone sort of creates two schools within a school. Kids also, by the time they get to junior high and high school, and we address this uh, actually very specifically in part two of the series, kids who in grammar schools in Oak Park who would sit at the same tables and mix racially, um, it still happens at the high school level, definitely, but there is this division that happens. You walk in the lunchroom and you see kids pairing off blacks and blacks and whites with whites. The other thing is, is that the school is a really highly regarded school, and it works extremely well for white parents and their children for the most part. And when a school works as well as OPRF works for the dominant um, race and the people who are in much more positions of authority and wealth in the community, then real change is harder to make because it's working for them. Well, and you address this, when the white students come in as characters in the series, then their understanding of the issues of race just simply don't exist because they're doing okay. Yeah, they don't have the same level. Now, in part two of the series, the kids talk some about their own experiences around race, and it's very interesting and very revealing, and their families do as well. But you're right. Their day-to-day life doesn't cause them to have to really grapple with or wrestle with these issues. But one of our kids, Brendan, who's white, in part two of the series, kind of laments about the fact that when he was in grammar school, that the kids seemed to all be together. And he saw the beginnings of those divisions happen in junior high culturally, but he also saw and witnessed teachers treating black students um, poorly, you know, telling kids that they weren't very smart, that were black happening at the grammar school in Oak Park, of all places. <laughs> so in terms of who comes off well in the film, if you were going to look for heroes, let's look at you know, good guys, bad guys. Right, so the teachers come off pretty well. Most of the teachers we feature come off well. And I think there's a little bit of self-selection in that, meaning that the teachers who really embraced being a part of the series were the teachers who cared, I think, the most deeply and challenged themselves around these issues the most. And so they, I think, are more effective teachers. You do see some teachers in the series who are grappling with how to be effective teachers around these issues. Um, But there was some self-selection. The other thing, though, to remember is is that there are a lot of really great teachers at the school. And it was really important in doing this series is that we weren't going to come in and try and just do some kind of expose on OPRF. That would be wrong and unfair. We did want to see inspired teaching where it exists and with our kids. Because we think people need to see that, and we hope that that might, you know, frankly inspire teachers out there who might watch this series who have some things to learn. And then one of the things that's very gripping is the families of some of the students because they are, not that they're involved academically, but they certainly want a conscious of how to overcome the obstacles and the issues that their kids may be dealing with. Absolutely. I think one of the stereotypes many white Americans have about black families and education. There are certain assumptions that we tend to make that um, if it's a single parent household, then that kid's pretty much doomed to, you know, not get a good education among other problems. And you see some correctives to that, I think, in this series. You see some single parent households where the mothers are avidly and very much involved in their child's education and want the best of them. You also see a single parent household where a mom is struggling around that because she herself Um, went to the school back in the 90s and never finished the school because they kind of ceremoniously kicked her out. And so she's got some real issues around that. 
but you also see some intact families. You know, it was very important in the casting of this series is, is that we see some different kinds of families than, again, are typically portrayed in the media um, when it comes to kids of color. And one of the other things that was really important, Milos, was Oak Park is a magnet for biracial families. It has something like six times the national average of biracial families. So it was also important in the series that we profile biracial families and we profile three of them over the course of the series, and they have some really interesting interactions around race and education in the community. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Milo Stelic speaking with filmmaker Steve James about his new TV series or film series. Docu-series, I think docu-series, is what they're calling these Docu-series, <laughs> which we're going to see on television, <laughs> on Stars, uh, America to Me. My one thing that I kind of took away from this, I kept thinking, this film is really messy. And then I thought, well... But it's not a film that's messy because the situation is messy because the approach to race in the schools is not a simple issue. It's a very messy issue because so many other factors enter into it, the student's ability, the family. So all of these things are really complicated and begin to intrude and in some way keep those racial issues going. Yeah, I like messy, Um, not as messy filmmaking, but I like messy in terms of what we're trying to show because I think you're right. It is a messy issue, not just in the community and in the school, of course, but in this country. And I think ultimately our intent here was to delve as sort of broadly and deeply at the same time into a single school in a a complex organism of a school and try and give you as full an understanding of all that goes on both in the lives of these kids and their families, in their classroom experiences, their extracurricular activities, certain teachers, the administration, even though it was against their will for the most part, and the larger community. Speaking of sports, I mean, the difference between the players on the teams who tend to be proportionately, many of them minority, and the cheerleaders is pretty interesting. How those things factor out, and it's kind of microcosm because a lot of the cheerleaders don't have the money to do dance training or things that really enter into it. So this is like economics factors into it. Yeah. You know, when my son, my oldest son, first went to school there, which was like back in 2002, he graduated in 2006, but he was in the marching band and we used to go to the football games. This is back in 2002. And I noticed back then, because that was the first time I'd gone to the high school football games, that the cheerleading squad, which was largely black, was at one end of the stadium where most of the black residents of the community that attended the game sat, and as well as kids, students, and that the drill team, which was overwhelmingly white, was down at the other end of the stadium where the band was playing and the student section was, and it was a pretty raucous you know, affair. And I remember thinking at the time, why is that happening here? And here we came back 16 years later, And it was exactly the same way. And that was an area of real curiosity to me. So when when I met Tiara, who's one of our students, and found out she was a cheerleader, that stood out to me as, oh, that's great, because she's really interesting in her own right. But the fact that she's on the cheerleading squad will be an interesting way to get into that. There are so many ways in which race and division show up in a community and in a school that apparently a lot of people seem to be unaware of, even when in a way as an outsider, and I'm, I'm not an outsider of the community, but was to that situation where it seems so patently obvious. So you're going, not having made this, you're going to be looked to as someone who has solutions. 
<laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> well, I mean, it's inevitable, right? I mean, like, so you're going to be asked, well, what's the fix? Because we yeah. always look for the quick fix, right? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is no quick fix here. I mean, the thing is, is that there are so many people who have made careers of studying this and looking at these issues of equity and education. I am not an expert and never will pretend to be. But I do think that what a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me about this will tell you is that a lot of it is about will and determination and courage. That, you know, in order for real change to happen, it's going to take real effort and not just effort by black parents and people of color pushing for their rights and for better treatment in the educational system and equity. But it's going to be required from whites. And that's true in society as a whole, that until white people also stand up and say, this must stop, this must change, and not just be focused on, well, I've got to look out for my kids, and I'm living in a liberal community, and my kids go to school with black kids, so I'm a good person. I'm doing enough. That's not enough. And one of the problems that Oak Park has struggled with is the courage to affect real change because it requires some sacrifice and some courage on the part of whites. So you want this docuseries to stir things up, stir the pot. Is I, that it? I, yeah. I, I want that to happen. But I also wanted to, apart from the sort of what we call the red meat parts of the film that delve into equity and education throughout the series, we also wanted to portray the lives of kids who were mostly black and biracial, who grow up in a place like Oak Park, who are not at risk of joining a gang, who are not at risk of when they walk to school in the morning, they might get shot who are not living in abject poverty, although a number of our kids, you know, they're scraping by. They've clawed their way into Oak Park so their kids can go to a school like Oak Park instead of the CPS schools. So there are real issues in their lives that would be grappled with. But it was also important, we just felt like, is to portray the lives of these kids that, you know, I think most people would assume, well, those kids are fine. I mean, they're in Oak Park. What's the problem? You know, everything's got to be fine for them. And that's not necessarily true. And they also have hopes and dreams that I think, I hope, that viewers watching this series will get caught up in and just be pulling for their success. Well, the kids are amazing, and and so are the teachers. But, yeah. I mean, it's an amazing situation because when you see not just the success but also the failure Yeah. because that's really what life is about and how do you overcome that failure. I mean, that's really the reality that's brought home. Yeah, and as the series goes on and it moves into the second half of the series, you see some real hardship that emerges for uh, a couple of the kids and you also see some incredible success, unexpected success. You know, it's a Cliffhanger. Docu-series. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> Keep watching. <laughs> You're listening to Worldview. I'm Mila Stalik. I've been speaking with filmmaker Steve James, whose new docu-series is America to Me. Thank you very much. Thank you, Milos. You can see America to Me on the Stars Network, and it's an ongoing project and a very enjoyable one. Steve James, America to Me. Coming up after the break, we'll have our, our uh, series Weekend Passport, where we tell you what to do on the weekends, and we'll talk about a new exhibit that features immigrant artists. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend Nari Safavi is here, and he has recommendations for you to get out and see something cool and global this weekend. Nice to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here, and happy uh, Labor Day weekend to everyone. Labor Day always offers us some kind of perennial chestnuts that are pretty cool. Absolutely. Uh, Like every uh, other Labor Day, we have had this this weekend, we're going to be able to go to Africa and many of the 51 different African countries with the African Festival of the Earth. It comes to uh, welcome uh, Seu Kuti from the famous Kuti family, uh, Nigerian family, musical family who have been uh, a contributor to the global sound and the world music scene for many decades. They'll be performing this weekend. He will be performing this weekend uh, through the Labor Day, September 3rd. Seon Kuti will be performing Sunday, September 2nd. And it's all happening at the Washington Park. All right. The African Festival of the Arts, as usual, in Washington Park. And anything else there? And we're also going to the 40th Annual Jazz Festival, which will be happening at the Millennium Park and the Chicago Cultural Center with some really fantastic uh, features of jazz artists coming from all over the world, not just the United States. Yep, it's a terrific thing, and it runs all day long. Uh, there's a terrific Brazilian thing today at 3 o'clock. Uh, our friends at WDCB are broadcasting the headliners, and uh, uh, Ramsey, Ramsey Lewis is uh, having a headline thing on, on sun, Saturday, and it should be good. Exactly. That's running through only Sunday, though. We should let people know that by Monday will be too late to go see that. All right, the good old uh, jazz fest. And finally, our featured element. What What's going exactly. on Exactly. Art and design in Chicago is living architecture. And uh, this is a project, an interesting project, uh, that's been really working on uh, contributions of uh, immigrants to art and design scene here in Chicago. And uh, as a spokesperson for that, uh, for that whole pr- project, we actually have an immigrant artist who's, uh, who has been doing some really great work here in Chicago, and we'll be doing some really great stuff, Uh, uh, Jan Tiki. Jan Tiki is here. He's a uh, participating artist in living architecture, and he's an associate professor at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. And also joining us is Elizabeth Glassman, president and CEO of the Terra Foundation for American Art. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the whole overarching idea behind Art Design Chicago, because there's a lot of projects you're involved in, and it seems really cool. It is. In fact, there are over 30 exhibitions and hundreds of public programs, and I'm especially happy to say that most of them are free. And the Art Design Chicago is an initiative of the Terra Foundation with many, many partners, more than 75 museums, cultural partners, other funders. Our goal was to celebrate Chicago's rich cultural legacy, art and design in Chicago from the fire, 1871, to the present. And I encourage everyone to get out all over the city, and especially September. I think there may be um, 20 more exhibitions opening this month alone. Yeah, check out the artdesignchicago.org website, and there's a just thing after thing, interesting thing to do. Jan, you've been participating on, on several levels. Yeah, I've been <clears throat> uh, fortunate enough to be part of a number of projects supported by Art and Design Chicago. Uh, one of them <clears throat> uh, is the Living Architecture, the exhibition um, 
that is opening on a Labor Day on Monday um, <clears throat> at 6018 North. Um, and <clears throat> it's a large exhibition, uh, over 50 artists, um, all of them immigrants living in Chicago, and looking <clears throat> on questions that uh, are arising today probably more than, uh, more than ever in regards to immigration uh, <clears throat> worldwide, nationally, and, and certainly here in Chicago. Uh, and many of us are also looking on other immigrants artists that <laughs> that were uh, part of this long tradition of um, of Chicago art making. Yeah. I should mention that 6018 North is uh, located at 6018 North Kenmore. It's an art space formerly resident that was actually built by uh, by an immigrant architect. And uh, it's run as an art organization uh, uh, headed by Trisha Vanak, I think, uh, still. And, uh, and that's where the event will be taking place this weekend. Uh, what, what, what time will it be happening on Saturday, I think? It's from 3 to uh-huh. 7 o'clock. 3 to 7 p.m. on the Saturday. So go check that out. And some of your work will be there, actually, for that. Yes. So And other and other people who are doing, doing the living architecture thing. 50 different immigrant artists. That's a whole lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, uh, this art space is big enough for all that. It's one entire villa. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whose art did you like besides your own? Was there somebody whose stuff was uh, interesting to you? Well, everything is interesting, right? Uh, and the exhibition uh, still didn't open, so we haven't seen the final pieces. But at the same time, I think that the way that the three curators that, that organized this exhibition worked over the entire summer in the neighborhood was <clears throat> inviting the artists to open their studios and invite um, the people from the neighborhood, many of them immigrants. It's a neighborhood with over 140 uh, different languages being spoken all around. Um, and these open studios provided a different type of access for different type of audiences to come to meet the artist, to see the work in progress. Um, so there is a lot of amazing work, really. So it was almost like a collaboration with the community. Certainly so, yeah. One oh. thing I would like to add is that um, there have been a couple of themes that have emerged from the Art Design Chicago exhibitions. We allowed everyone to just do what was important for their institutions. But one of the major themes that's emerged is the role of immigrant artists in Chicago. And this is in two ways, immigration and migration. And there are actually four other shows up during this fall, opening in September. Lions, which is at the Ukrainian Institute for Modern Art now. There's a show on Todros Geller, Strange Worlds at the Spiritus, Ishimoto um, at the DePaul Museum, and participatory arts, crafting social change at the Jane Adams Hall House. That's just in September, along with 6018 North. Yeah, and we have before covered a couple of months ago. We covered Diseño Chicago, which was about Mexican American exactly. designers and artists and architect. It was at the National Mexican Museum. Uh, your foundation has been. I see a little bit of a shift in the projects that you are supporting, in the sense that you are including the immigrant and the immigrant heritage into the American art definition. 
Well, I think it's very important at this time to talk about all of American art. It's been there since the (laughs) colonial era. We were the immigrant artists. So, I mean, this is an important part of the story of American art and what telling what our narratives are, both as a city and a nation. Absolutely. That's great. Jan, tell us a little about yourself. Where were you from originally? I was born in Prague in Czechoslovakia, uh, back on the other side of the wall. Um, uh, I grew up there. I studied in Israel, um, and I came uh, to Chicago 11 years ago um, to study at the School of the Artists, where I'm teaching now. Uh, How do you think that informs your work? How did your um, global perspective change your art? I don't know if it's necessarily the global perspective, but I think that uh, one of the things that immigrants uh, are bring is the outside perspective, uh, to be able to see things a little bit differently uh, than the people on site. And um, I guess one of the better known projects that I was um, able to do in Chicago, Project Cabrini Green, that dealt with the demolition of the last building of, uh, of Cabrini Green, um, I think one of the reasons that I was able to do that is because I was coming from outside uh, and that uh, issue that was so charged uh, that that might be too charged for for local artists to deal with. Um, I don't know if today, after all these years, I would dare to uh, to deal with issue like that again. What was your piece like? <laughs> Well, we what we wanted to do is to is to provide a platform for the people, especially the young people that live in a Cabrini and around Cabrini Green, uh, to speak about their experiences and and through that, sort of light up uh, the month long demolition of the building and placing uh, these light translated poems inside the building as it was going down. Oh, very interesting. Oh. Jan, I wanted to ask you about, if I may, about Art on the Mart. And this is going to be an interesting happening coming up later on this month, and it will be open to the public. It will be a cool thing for people to see. Uh, your artistic reputation is more as a photographer, but you're doing something here that's more about intersection of art and technology. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so Art on Mart uh, is the new permanent uh, platform for public art in the city. Um, and I was commissioned by the Terra Foundation um, <clears throat> to come with a proposal for uh, the inaugural projection. Um, as a part of Art and Design Chicago, the idea was to look at the history of the local art and design um, <clears throat> and think about it uh, in a in a way that could uh, that could be accessible to the public, yeah. um, and so my proposal is looking on seven historical consecutive local artists that nature had a major part in their uh, in their work. Interesting. And taking this nature elements, sort of based on the herbs in Horto. Uh, Taking these nature elements and growing these seven digital gardens on the facade of the mart. Cool. (laughs) Yeah, you have to understand that's 2.5 acres of projection, projected art. You're going to be on the the largest (laughs) curated digital art installation ever will be inaugurated on September 29th. Wow, that sounds sounds spectacular. Now, uh, what's your piece for living architecture? What was that? What's that like? 
Well, living architecture uh, is uh, invited so many artists sort of to come and explore first of all the architecture of the site of this of this villa of this building in the neighborhood um, and and the two spaces that uh, that felt uh, somehow interested interesting to me to be engaged with were the known functioning bathrooms and the basement and on the first floor um, and <laughs> I have to say that I have not been thinking about bathroom as an architectural space before uh, starting to work <laughs> with 6018. <laughs> but if you think about it, there is something very unique about this space that we all have in our uh, in our homes um, and that many times we use as a place of refuge, uh, both physical as well as psychological. Uh, it's a place that affords different things that the other places in the house. And so I'm trying to create... <clears throat> these two different uh, experiences that one can have as, um, as experiencing these these empty spaces. All right, so we'll look for you in the bathroom of the, <laughs> the exhibit. <laughs> that sounds terrific. And the exhibit uh, opens uh, Living Architecture on September 3rd on Labor Day. There's a connection with Labor Day and immigration. And it's at 6018 North Kenmore Avenue in Chicago, and I am going to check it out. Nari, I bet you'll check it out. Definitely, it will be. It's right on the corner of uh, of uh, uh, near near Electro Drive and near Devon, right near the right L stop over there. Yes, right there in Edgewater. Yeah. Okay, uh, and thanks very much for joining us, uh, Elizabeth Glassman, President and CEO of the Terra Foundation for American Art. By all means, check out artdesignchicago.org for a compendium of almost everything that's going on in art in Chicago right now. It's terrific. And Jan Tishi, participating artist at Living Architecture and a professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, thanks a lot for joining us. Next week will be interesting during the middays. Uh, Monday, we're taking a day off for the holiday. Have a great Labor Day. The rest of the week, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings are taking place, and we'll be jumping in in the middle of it sometime around noon, vaguely, on most days. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.